Welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in lovely Johannesburg. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a happy new year to you as well. We've, we were off uh, for a few days here, actually not voluntarily speaking. Uh, we had some technical problems. Kobus and I had a fantastic discussion about South Sudan and the Chinese diplomacy there that unfortunately the internet gods uh, did not permit the publication of because it just the sound quality uh, just broke down. So uh, we will come back to South Sudan. Uh, today we're going to talk about uh, Sino-Japanese diplomacy in Africa. Now this is a very interesting topic because if you've been following the news, you know that uh, at least out here in Asia, it feels like we're on the verge of World War III. Uh, I'm not sure, Kobus, you were in Japan and where the headlines is alarmist in Japan about what's going on between the Chinese and Japanese in the South China Sea as they are everywhere else in Asia? Yes. Okay, yes, good. Uh, yeah. Well, for, for those of you who are kind of not familiar with what's going on, uh, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe has kicked off a three-nation tour in Africa, coming right on the heels of Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi's uh, four-nation tour in Africa. And along the way, they seem to have brought their squabbling dispute uh, that dates back decades, generations, uh, and, and, and really is intensifying in the current contemporary era. They have now kind of brought that all the way to Africa. And so we're going to talk about that today and kind of look at it both from the Sino-Japanese political side and also what the implications are for Africa. Uh, Kobus, before we get started, let us kind of just frame the discussion because a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with the historical tensions that exist between China and Japan. And kind of without going too much into detail, just kind of give us an overview of why these two countries still have a lot of issues with one another. Um, the main issue um, comes from just just before the Second World War and leading into the Second World War. Um, during that time, um, Japan colonized uh, a, a, a large chunk of northern China and it basically set up its, uh, a puppet state there. Um, and it was part of the of the greater expansionist project, which ended up, you know, kind of bringing them into direct conflict with the U.S. Um, and obviously, once they once they lost the war, um, you know, kind of that part of China reverted to the Chinese government. Um, since then, um, it's been an up and down relationship. It hasn't been, you know, it was never super warm, but it was. It certainly had warmer times than it is that it had now. Um, you know, Japan was for a long time one of the biggest investors in China. It was. Uh, it, it had a close relationship with China long before the rest of the world kind of, you know, started fostering relationships with China. Um, and it, it has paid a lot of aid to, to China over the years. Um, but, you know, kind of it's, it's been a fractious relationship. And now, obviously, because of um, disputes around, about, around certain islands, um, you know, kind of uh, that that basically are claimed by by both China, Japan, and also by Taiwan. Um, oh, and Vietnam, the Philippines, and oh, uh, yes. the whole yes. neighborhood down here is claiming those. Yes, uh, but you know, interesting. Let's let's kind of before we get into the the contemporary issues again, delve a little bit in the history here and and its relevance to Africa. And uh, Professor Deborah Baudigam goes into this in quite a lot of detail. Is that in many ways China's current policy in Africa is framed on its own experience with Japan 
as you mentioned, Japan uh, was really one of the first to go into China during the Cold War. A lot of that was guilt money uh, for the, 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 the horrors of World War II. They will not say that openly, but that was in effect what was happening was to, instead of admitting reparations and admitting era for World War II, which the Japanese still seem to struggle with, uh, they went in heavily and invested in China, and billions and billions of dollars in resources for cash deals. Uh, and, and, you know, they were – at that time, China was an oil exporter and Japan was one of the earliest countries to exploit that. And by – they built infrastructure in China. And, and so in some ways, the model for what we're seeing the Chinese do in Africa was very much framed in the 60s, 70s, and 80s by the Japanese in China. Uh, very quickly, also, the narrative of the Chinese being victims of colonialism and imperialism that they often recount in Africa – uh, to kind of you know build solidarity and brotherhood with Africa is rooted very much in the experience that they had with the Japanese, as you mentioned, uh, with the, the imperial government that took over part of China. And also, let's not forget the Nanjing Massacre. Uh, more recently, what's happened is the fact that you've had the, the arrival of Shinzo Abe and also Xi Jinping, both very, very strong nationalist leaders, very, very strong military leaders, and very, very powerfully strong. In fact, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but Shinzo Abe is probably one of the most powerful prime ministers that Japan has had in, in at least 10 years, if not more. Uh, and, and, and he's been able to leverage that and, and kind of put Japan on a, on a stronger military footing. Am I correct there? Yes, he's, he's trying to um, he's trying to normalize the Japanese constitution. So, so keep in mind that the, the Japanese constitution is a peace constitution that was written by the by the Americans um, after the Second World War, and they're not legally allowed to to. Uh, to deploy troops and in, in foreign areas, they can only use their army, and they have a large army. Um, they can only deploy it as as uh, in, in, a, in a defensive way, and they, it's actually officially called the self defense force. Yes, um, yes, and um, you know, kind of, and he is trying to to normalize it into the, the kind of a, a, a government army relationship that that would be you know kind of normal to to other countries as well, and trying to to um, to move Japan into a, a kind of a fuller role in the international community, which is how they would put it. Well, and also, let's though they call it an, a, an SDF, a self-defense force, Japan spends about 1% of its uh, GNP on military, which makes it a huge military budget by the standards of most people around the world. So what the situation we have right now in Asia is you've got Basically, uh, you, you've got these islands called, uh, depending on who you speak to, in, in Japanese parlance, they are the Senkaku Islands, and then in the in the Chinese context, they're Jiaoyutai. So uh, this has become the flashpoint, and all points now for the Chinese foreign policy and for Japanese foreign policy lead to these islands in this dispute. And so when Wang Yi went over to, to Africa, uh, and he visited uh, Senegal, Ethiopia, Djibouti, and Ghana, he brought with him, uh, you know, he packed a whole lot of rhetoric in his suitcase to kind of, you know, I think in some ways, you know, burn the ground ahead of Abe's visit who was coming. And Abe was on his way to Ethiopia, Ivory Coast, and Mozambique. And uh, we, we started to see this flurry of rhetoric come out from, from really from both sides. So, you know, Kobus, let's start with the Chinese first because, you know, Wang was there first and, and before Abe got there. 
What do you think the Chinese were trying to achieve by kind of almost subtly, even directly putting down the Japanese uh, for, for their diplomacy? In part, they were kind of alluding to that the Japanese have not paid much attention to Africa. They were alluding to the fact that, you know, China's got real friends in Africa, kind of wink, wink, nod, nod. Uh, lay the groundwork for us on the Chinese point of view before we get to the Japanese. Well, I, I think, you know, the... The Chinese mode of communication um, is is a kind of a strategic communication uh, model um, where they tend to, you know, their, their foreign policy fights tend to get fought um, in, in other areas of the world than where it's they're taking place. So, for example, when um, when the the island dispute first really started flame, kind of flaring up. Um, Chinese ambassadors in lots of different countries on lots of different continents published op-eds, um, you know, kind of condemning Japanese militarism and Japanese aggression and, and so on. Um, so I think it's, it's part of that, you know, kind of that this fight gets played, you, you know, gets, gets, gets fought in, in a kind of a discursive way, no matter, you know, kind of what the particular, um, the particular, you know, um, occasion is, um, and I think it's it's such it's it's so kind of hot in in the East Asian space at the moment that the, it's kind of spilled over. Um, that's one thing, and in the other the other thing I think is also that there is a, a perception I think in China, and I think it's not not completely. Um, Ungrounded, that um, that Japan is trying to f- to follow the Chinese model in Africa, you know, kind of for a while, um, Japan tended to to focus a lot on aid, um, and so you know, kind of they basically followed a European model, um, and now they they are focusing much more on uh, they're much more business minded, they're focusing much more on expanding markets and on, on cornering um, commodities. Now, this isn't necessarily just because they're copying China, but it's also because the Abe government is much more business-minded generally. The economy is their number one concern. Um, so, but, but I think China provided a very, a very uh, convenient model. So the Chinese, I think, is, is maybe, you know, kind of somewhat resentful or maybe just simply, you know, kind of trying to, uh, to undercut that, that expansion as, you know, kind of as it happens. Well, let's go to the Chinese foreign minister here where spokeswoman Hua Chunying uh, last Wednesday came out, and this is quoting from Xinhua, and, uh, and the headline was, Spokeswoman Refutes Criticism of Foreign Minister's Africa Visit. So that kind of intrigued me, and we posted it up on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Xinhua piece never actually mentioned the criticism. They didn't say who it was from. They just basically blasted the Japanese for alluding to the fact that the Chinese uh, were somehow disingenuous in their, uh, in their relations in Africa. And, she, and it says, uh, quote, she said she has no idea which expert holds this view, and she believes that this expert has no knowledge about the history and current development of China-Africa relations. Now, again, I think, Kobus, to your point where the Chinese do not use a lot of direct communications when they do broadsides like this, I thought it was fascinating that Hua was responding to a supposed expert, which they don't name, B, didn't actually even specify the criticism, and then Xinhua kind of leads this out. And this was, I think, the first shot that the Chinese foreign ministry took against Japan, and then it just kind of continued. Once again, I think it's very important for people to understand the stakes of what's going on here. And I don't know if we have kind of emphasized this enough. And I think this is important because 
the European and African and even I would say the American, certainly the American news cycle is absolutely underplaying the level of tension that's going on in the South China Sea right now where you have literally destroyers from three countries, the United States, Japan, and China all faced off against each other. The Japanese have launched American-made drones over these islands. The Chinese Air Force is up there. It is an extraordinarily tense situation where the margin for error is is shrinking ever so rapidly that we are – I mean I I don't want to sound alarmist, but I really do feel – that we are on the verge of a massive conflict just because a 26-year-old lieutenant flying uh, a J-20 fighter jet uh, makes a mistake. And, and, and so it, it, the tension is so palpable, but you don't feel that in the news cycle outside of Asia. You feel it here. And so when the spokeswoman gets, you know, you know, kind of leads the charge, I think she is bringing that baggage into the African space. So the Chinese then went on throughout the week to kind of, you know, salt the earth with yet more kind of indirect uh, tidbits. Let's get to the Japanese side now. And, and this part, Kobus, I'd love to get your response to. Uh, this is a quote from Abe when he was uh, in Mozambique uh, this week. He said, quote, Countries like Japan, Britain, and France cannot provide African leaders with beautiful houses or beautiful ministerial buildings. Now, to me, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to call shenanigans there on a couple different fronts. Number one, he obviously doesn't know French foreign policy in Africa very well because there yeah, are beautiful yeah. buildings for African leaders up and down Avenue Fush. It is really just shocking to see, you know, the, the, the I don't know if, he's, if, if these narratives that they're putting out are delusional intentionally or if the fact that the Japanese truly are clueless about African history. That's number one. Uh, number two, the fact is that, you know, he, the, the, we've talked a little bit about the Western aid agenda in Africa and how it's not been effective. And yet he's, he seems to be doubling down on that as a diss towards the Chinese. What was your reaction to that? Well, you know, kind of, I think the, um, yeah, I agree with you that, um, that the, you know, kind of <laughs> lumping Britain and France into this club of love, of poor little nations that can't afford to, to build beautiful <laughs> houses for African leaders is crazy. Um, in, in terms of the aid, I, th- it's, they seem to be diversifying. Um, you know, so over the last, from the, the last year, um, the Tokyo International, um, Conference on African Development, which actually predates FOCAC, um, like the Chinese, uh, I've, I've seen actually even Chinese academics saying that FOCAC was the first real engagement between Asia and Africa. It's not true. TICAD was earlier. Um, but, you know, kind of TICAD has, has grown a, a lot. Um, and especially last year, they, they announced a heap of new aid. But, it's not all they, you know, kind of they, they seem to be trying to grad, grad, graduate out of pure kind of aid and development towards investment um, and trade. Um, and, you know, kind of a lot of these, of the deals that he announced are trade deals, um, although they, they are frequently bundled with a certain amount of, of aid as well. Um, so, and that's, that's another indication that they, that they might actually be learning from the Chinese, you know, kind of approach to Africa rather than, you know, kind of planting themselves, you know, st- 
still in the kind of European camp. Well, Abe calls it uh, what you what you just described, quote unquote, business diplomacy. And, and last year at that TCAD summit that you talked about, Abe pledged thirty two billion dollars in public and private funding for African development over the next five years. They really do like the African uh, Development Bank and these multilateral institutions. Uh, let's not forget also that Japan, with the ODA there, the Overseas Development Agency, uh, is I think for a long time was the largest international aid. Uh, provider and donor uh, for a long time. I think they've now been number two or number three. So they've had a very active presence in aid. But as you said, it, particularly in Africa, they are switching to to more strategic types of, of investment. Now, this is where, again, I'm going to call shenanigans. Uh, y- you know, so on the one hand, he's criticizing Afri- China's resource diplomacy. And they've been very clear that it's kind of like they're not benefiting the people. They're just going for their own need. And, and at the same time, then, it, it just seems remarkable to me that Abe – in the same breath will then turn around and say he's got a rare earth investment in Mozambique. Now, rare earth for the Japanese is a very sensitive issue. Uh, Kobus, if you'll recall, uh, five or six years ago, over... Oh, God, I'm spacing what the issue was. I want to say it was the Yasukuni Shrine visit. Uh, but yeah, uh, I think so. I think it was the Yasukuni Shrine visit of a Japanese prime minister to the shrine of the World War II uh, veterans who happened to also have... Uh, about a dozen to maybe two dozen uh, Class A war criminals who are interned there. And every year, the or almost every year, a Japanese prime minister goes to visit. The Koreans, Japanese, uh, Chinese, and others just, you know, just go up in arms over it. And then China, what they did is they, they cut off all exports of rare earths. And China has about a 95%, 96% global market share on rare earths uh, to Japan. Now, rare earths is one of these minerals that you know, we don't really know that much about, but it happens to be in your Toyota Prius. It happens to be in uh, electronics. It happens to be in so many different products. And it really scared Japan when Toyota had to shut some of its production lines down. So the fact that now they're in Mozambique looking for rare earths, which also happened to be in the Congo, is to me, you know, again, disingenuous because they're doing exactly what the Chinese are doing, right? Yeah, but for me, in that sense, they, in that sense, that they're kind of so similar. You know, kind of. I, I mean, if, if they're disingenuous, then the Chinese are disingenuous as well. In the sense that both sides are are pushing the line that they're developing human capital, yes. that they kind of supporting African development, and they're there also to make deals. You know, kind of. And from their perspective, they would probably see it as those deals also enable a certain amount of development. So, yeah, they're, okay. they're very similar. I'll take that. Yeah. Uh, now, let's just before we move on to China shenanigans, we'll wrap up. Uh, the fact is, is that Japan has not paid much attention to Africa. This is the first visit of a Japanese prime minister to, to, to Africa as a whole in eight years. Eight years. I mean, it took, what, Xi Jinping all of, you know, a, a few weeks before he made his visit. Uh, and then this is the first Japanese prime minister to a Francophone country in West Africa. So, and that might be one of the interesting things here, that Japan may look to go to, to Francophone West Africa, where the Chinese are not as present in Africa. And so Ivory Coast and that, you know, certainly around Mali. We've talked about the Chinese involvement there in the UN. But in business, uh, the Francophone world in Africa is one that they are not as developed. So we talked about the yeah. BS, well, at least what I thought was the BS coming out of, uh, out, of the, out of the Japanese side. Now let's talk about the BS coming out of the Chinese side. Uh, uh, Xinhua and CCTV had a great uh, kind of quote that they summarized Wang Yi's tour of Africa. 
that Sino-African ties are based on, and this is my favorite word, morality and mutual benefit. Uh, I can see every one of our, uh, our rabid Facebook fans who hate the Chinese <laughs> for their their wildlife and their ivory policies going, just pulling their hair out going, morality? Are you kidding me? Now, I'm trying to think that the Chinese have a different definition of morality than what we think of in the West. But uh, when you think of Chinese foreign policy and Sino-African ties, is, does morality come up in the... Uh my my reading of that was that it, it fits into the um, the Chinese dream, African dream meme, mm-hmm. in the sense that from you know kind of China makes such a big thing of how it's a developing country, and I mean it is a developing country. Um, so I think you know kind of from their perspective, the the developing of of an economy and lifting people out of poverty that is morality. Um, I think for you know kind of from from the kind of the the rhetoric of the, of the Chinese dream that Xi Jinping has been pushing. So that's kind of how. I understood it, but but it is a very fuzzy word. Well, and also I think to your point that they believe that they're dealing with uh, African countries and all countries, large or small, rich or poor, on an equal basis, an equal footing as as peers. And and in the second part of the criticism was the fact that they say that they reject the capitalist, and this is their quote, the capitalist uh, agenda in Africa. So there's a real still some some throwback to the Cold War rhetoric. Uh, that we have. Let me see if I have that. Oh, I don't have that quote available. But yeah. uh, but he, they did kind of say they even you know used this very kind of almost North Korean language to to describe you know the, the the capitalism and the fact that they are different than the West. And I think that's where probably you're right where morality comes in. But morality seems like such a loaded word. Yeah, and also, I mean, it's so rich from the Chinese to to criticize other countries for capitalism when you know, kind of, you have the the world's biggest conglomerates, you know, kind of heavily invested all over the continent. I mean, it's crazy. You know, who's who's more capitalist than China? At the you moment? know, but I, I think there's part of this is that one of the criticisms that people throw against the Americans, and I'm certainly one, against my own people, is the lack of self reflection that Americans have uh, when they're overseas and about the world as a whole. We oftentimes like to think that everybody wants to be like us. Uh, I also think there's a little bit of that that goes on with the Chinese, is that they they don't think through either intentionally or just out of ignorance how language like morality can be construed by people you know who who may not understand the, as you talked about the Chinese dream African dream narrative, some of the historical narratives that go into it, and I think it leads to why the Chinese are often misunderstood uh, in other parts of the world. The Americans, by the way, make the same complaint that you know people aren't seeing us. You know, they see the Iraq War, they see Guantanamo Bay, they see a lot of the negatives about the United States now, and increasingly we feel misunderstood uh, around the world. So I just, I don't know, these great powers, these big, giant continental superpowers sometimes lack the self-reflection, and so when they say things, it it comes out sounding kind of silly, but at the end of the day, as you talked about, it's, it's very, very deeply rooted in their own narratives. Yeah, yeah, you know, kind of, I think it also reflects to how they see their own position in the world. Um, you know, so obviously Japan is frequently, um, was, was frequently characterized as cold um, to, to the rest of the world, um, you know, especially to Africa. And, and I think that's probably true to a certain extent. But from the Japanese perspective, as I understand it, um, a lot of it had to do with worries that Africa was 
unsafe. Um, and you know, kind of, it didn't come out of out of you know, it, it wasn't uh, you know just just a projection um, because the, you know about a year ago there was this incident where ten Japanese executives were uh, kidnapped by jihadists. I think in Algeria. It was Algeria. Algeria and killed. Yeah, and um, you know, kind of, so they come you know, kind of facing a certain amount of, of, of resistance within Japan to this idea of, of Japanese people and Japanese work crews and so on going to this dangerous place. Um, and, you know, kind of, I think, I think they've, the, the, the different ministries have, have been working a lot to try and roll that image back. Um, you know, kind of, but, but it, it is a conservative country, you know, kind of, and, and, and it's a country that, that has, in its whole post-war uh, you know, history, try to align itself with the first world and, in a way, trying to become more first world than the first world. Um, you know, so, and so I think in the, in the, it, it is a kind of a very interesting and significant shift for them to, to now kind of step out and, you know, kind of compete with China in this kind of dusty frontier kind of economy. Um, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens and what kind of projects are happening, um, particularly, you know, kind of for the one that I'm particularly interested in is is the 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 pipeline project that has been um, that is supposed to connect uh, South Sudan to Kenya um, and that it is supposed to be built by Toyota Industries, Heavy Industries. Um, so, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see whether that happens. I doubt that it would still happen because of chaos in South Sudan. Well, chaos in South Sudan, a little, some would say chaos in the South China Sea. Um, we are probably going to see more of this competition between China and Japan, not only in Africa, but in other markets around the world here in Southeast Asia and, uh, and certainly in South America as well. So this may be part of a global cat and mouse that the two play as an extension of their ongoing tensions uh, in Asia as well. But unfortunately, it does not look like uh, there's any opportunity to dial down these tensions right now, and we can only hope that it doesn't escalate further. So uh, we'd love to hear what you think. Uh, do you agree, disagree with what we've said today? day. Um, pretty easy. Some people, you know, certainly I know this is a passionate issue among our listeners in China um, who are going to probably rail against something that I said this <laughs> today. <laughs> it's inevitable. But nonetheless, well, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, for those of you not in China behind the Great Firewall, uh, Facebook is the best place to get a hold of us. Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Cobus and I are on that page every single day. Cobus uh, updates from Africa. I update from Asia. So we get about 18 hours a day of posts and discussions. Uh, we're at about 145,000 followers now, so if you're not a member and not following this page, think of it as just a, a curated news feed of the top headlines of the day. Uh, we also, uh, both of us are on Twitter as well. Uh, Kobus, where can people find you if they want to follow you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me over at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, and then, of course, if you want to listen to the show, uh, Facebook is a great place right there on the page. But easily the best way to do it is on iTunes. And just look for us under China Africa Project. We would be so grateful if you leave a comment, good, bad, or ugly. But the more people that comment, the more that iTunes kind of pushes us up to the surface to our long-held dream of one day being on the homepage. Uh, I'm not sure if that's ever going to happen. But no, Kobus, we were on the South African iTunes homepage, right? Yes, we were. Ah, yeah, okay. A long time ago. Really, long yeah. time ago. So if anybody's listening from <laughs> Apple, we can uh, put us back on the South African iTunes homepage. It would be awesome. <laughs> uh, until next time, we'll be back with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.